Okay, so tonight we have first Tom Wanamaker, and he was a submariner for six years, and then he got his bachelor and his master's in mathematics, and he taught two years, uh, um, studied two years towards his PhD. He taught at his alma mater, um, University of Houston. He was an adjunct instructor at the downtown college and at UCCS. And he is married to the beautiful Tommy, and they will be celebrating their anniversary 50th in December. So, Tom, come up and take it away. Oh, encourage him. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right. A friend of mine called me uh, yesterday and said, well, let's go to lunch. And I said, no, uh, I got to work on my slides. What are you doing? He said, Maxwell's equations. Oh, I didn't know you were teaching again. And I said, well, I'm not. <clears throat> I'm giving a presentation at church. <laughs> and he goes, what? <laughs> so this is about my passion. And my passion is mathematics and the history of math and science. And so um, I didn't start out that way. I mean, I was just, you know, just a kid. I wasn't a, a math whiz or anything like that. But I went to high school in a Catholic seminary. And we got four years of science, five years of math, and six years of languages. And so that was uh, that was a pretty classical education there. And that's where I got hooked. That's what's impressed me all these years is the... Uh, uh, the architecture of the universe, you know, the symmetry of mathematics, the construction of it, the elegance, the simplicity of it. That's what, that's what keeps me going. So one of the big things, uh, that has, has happened, not in our lifetime, but, you know, recently, um, was the, uh, was Maxwell's equations. And so, that um, the the physicist Richard Feynman, the you know, famous 20th century physicist, he said that Maxwell didn't just change the world. And that, by the way, that's uh, uh, that's a uh, the latest biography of James Clark Maxwell is the man who changed the world. Feynman said he didn't change the world; he just opened up an entirely different world. And so everything you see now in terms of uh, radio, television, wireless communications, everything owes its existence to Maxwell's equations. So let's go ahead and get started here. Uh, so this is a little bit, um, I thought it was going to be a little bit larger. So I'll just read it real quick. Maxwell's equations are a set of four equations that together form a complete description of the production and interaction of electric and magnetic fields. These equations are named for James Clark, Ma Clark Maxwell, the Scottish physicist 
whose pioneering work during the second half of the 19th century unified the theories of electricity and magnetism and light. <clears throat> At the beginning of the 19th century, um, electricity and magnetism were, were lab curiosities. And uh, thing, things like, you know, flying kites with a key on it just so you could, you know, make something happen. And there was no, there was no connection uh, observed between electricity and magnetism. And quite frankly, most of the scientists didn't believe it. You know, they, if you asked their opinion, they would say, no, don't see the connection there. Um, <clears throat> Alessandro Volta was an Italian scientist who built the first battery. Back then, they weren't called batteries. They were called voltaic piles. <clears throat> it's like copper and zinc. Um, discs interspersed with uh, <clears throat> cloth uh, soaked in salt water. But what happened was he would make those. For any scientist who asked for them, he would make one and, and send it to him. And that allowed... Uh, scientists to begin to experiment in the lab with continuous uh, a continuous uh, source of electricity. So that's that's kind of got the ball rolling. <clears throat> um, so I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself right now. Uh, <clears throat> the um, the unification that Maxwell did, the unifying the theories of electricity and magnetism and light, that's called the second great unification. The first great unification was Newton unifying physics and astronomy. And the second great unification is, <coughs> electromag or is, is electricity and magnetism and light being shown as fundamental features of the same underlying concept. And we're in the middle of the third great unification, which is trying to figure out how to make electromagnetism work with the strong and weak nuclear forces and gravity, you know, to unify all that. And it's a long haul. <laughs> it's not going to happen anytime soon. All right. <clears throat> So Maxwell's equations, those four right here, okay, I'm, I'm not going to make you uh, recite them. Uh, <clears throat> I thought what I would do is just simply uh, go through the <clears throat> four of them. The first one is Gauss's law of static electric fields. What it says is that um, it defines a relationship between positive and negative charges. Things move, things diverge, remember that word diverge, from positive charges to negative charges. And then <clears throat> the electric field uh, is... Um, depends on the charge distribution. And if you look at the next page right there, you can see 
<clears throat> on the right-hand side, the different uh, field distributions depends on whether you got two negatives close together, they repel. Uh, a positive and negative, they attract. But you're always moving from positive to negative. Um, if you have unequal charges, then you get those kind of in interesting field patterns. For magnetic fields, it's simple. Every All magnetic lines are closed loops. And they go from North Pole to South Pole, and that's it. So <clears throat> when you get back here, that's the second law, which uh, is the Gauss law of static magnetic fields. That defines the relationship between magnetic poles and the magnetic field lines. They're always closed loop. Very simple. Then the third law is Faraday's law of electromagnetic induction, and that says that a changing magnetic field produces a circulating um, electric field. And then the last one, the uh, Ampere's law, it's actually the Ampere-Maxwell law, uh, an electric current produces a circulating magnetic field also, a changing electric field also produces a circulating magnetic field. So, let me look at the uh, pictures again. Okay, that's a picture of Ampere's law. <clears throat> and what happens is you have, a, uh, you have a current going through a wire. It creates a magnetic, a circulating magnetic field. And the reason why <clears throat> they found that out is by accident. Yeah, Hans Christian Ørsted in 1820, he was working on um, the conductivity of different materials, uh, conducting electricity. And so he was getting prepared for an experiment, and he turned on his electric circuit, and there was a compass nearby, and the compass jumped. And that was, that was shocking to him. He didn't understand that. So, so, um, so he went and demonstrated that several times. And Andre Ampere, when he came to the French Academy of Sciences and showed this, um, Ampere said, yeah, I bet you I know why that is. And so Ampere's law said that if you have uh, electricity running through a wire, it will create a magnetic, a circulating magnetic field. And if the current's going the other way, it'll, it'll curl the opposite way. <clears throat> So let me let me try this. <clears throat> Save the best for last. That's Faraday's experiment. Um, Faraday was really the first one who used the word electromagnetic. 
They saw the connection. And what he did was, <clears throat> if you if you close the switch there and run the battery, and you run a you you run electricity through that current, that creates the magnetic field, which changes and induces a current on the right hand side, completely unconnected circuit. <clears throat> Faraday had he used the word electromagnetic. He used the terms field and lines of force, and he was the first one to do it. And actually, when you think about it, this, we could have been talking about Faraday's laws instead of in Faraday's equations instead of Maxwell equations. But Faraday didn't have any mathematical background. He could just talk about these things. And <clears throat> everybody says, well, if you don't have the equations, then sorry. <clears throat> hmm? Got eight minutes? Okay, got to go fast. All right. So the other the other side, uh, the other side, you'll see in those equations. There's that kind of upside down triangle. That's the Dell operator. It's a differential operator. This is this is the mathematics. This is this is the math lesson. Uh, <clears throat> That's an operator on a vector field. On in a vector field, everything has magnitude, you know, distance from the origin, and a direction. Kind of, if you think about, if you look at the weather maps, and you'll, you know, you'll see things moving around like wind or temperature. It's the same thing. Every 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 position in the field has a magnitude and a direction. <clears throat> and so the, the two operators, del dot and del cross, those are like uh, derivatives in calculus. If anybody who's had calculus, in calculus you're always concerned about distance, velocity, rate of change of distance, acceleration, rate of change of velocity. You're concerned about rates of change with respect to time. So what the two what the two uh, operators do? The two operators <clears throat> that del dot operator measures the instantaneous rate of change in the strength of the vector field. Remember, it's it's at, at a maximum when you're near a positive charge. And when you get, go away from it, then it's going to weaken. And then as you head toward a, uh, a sink, you know, a negative charge, then it's going to increase in strength in the opposite direction. And then the other one, the del cross, uh, that's the cross product. And <clears throat> what that does is it tells you the degree of, of local spinning. You know, this is the, again, this is the, this is the rotating magnetic field. <clears throat> they used to call it vorticity, but that's, you know, too long a word. The name of that operator is curl. Because the magnetic field curls around 
a an electric uh, elect electricity running through a a, a, a wire. So I'm not going to walk you through that math there. So, <clears throat> so the big question is, if it's two of Gauss's laws and Faraday's law and um, Ampere's law, then why do they call it Maxwell's equations? Okay, so we go through a little bit of history here. <clears throat> Math lesson's over with. We'll, we're just talking about history now. So in 1785, Charles Coulomb was experimenting with uh, uh, measuring electric force between charged vehicles or uh, charged uh, charged objects. <clears throat> and in 1813, Carl Friedrich uh, Gauss was a, uh, a mathematician who was looking at the physics of it. You know, how do you how do you calculate the uh, force of attraction or force of repulsion between these charged objects? And he pretty much uh, he pretty much nailed it down, and then published his uh, findings in 1835. Didn't. He wrote it in his private papers. He didn't publish it. So it didn't get published until 1867 when they were going through his collected works and they found out all kinds of things that he had studied and proved and demonstrated. Um, and it never saw the light of day. So... Uh, that particular part of it, Gauss's laws, didn't come out until 1867, which was two years after Maxwell published all of his work. So, because it traces back to his original work, then he gets the credit for it. So, um, now, <clears throat> now, Ampere published his uh, circuit law, uh, you know, that uh, <clears throat> the rotating rotating field. <clears throat> he published that in 1826. And when Maxwell put his work together, uh, put the entire theory together, um, Ampere's work was incomplete, that Ampere talked about the field rotating around uh, electricity conducting up a wire, but what um, Maxwell demonstrated was you can also do that by a changing magnetic field. So, so he added that. Okay. And then Faraday. Faraday, <clears throat> Faraday was talking about fields and lines of force and all that good stuff, um, but he didn't have the mathematics. And so what 
what Maxwell did was he decided he was going to write the field equations for Faraday. And in fact, he and Faraday, even though there was 35, 40 years difference in their ages, um, he, um, they were able to, <coughs> to communicate. And so he built, uh, his original first paper in 1856 on Faraday's lines of force. Then, uh, he, f he further expanded it. He, th he, uh, threw in the uh, addition to uh, Ampere's law, and then he wrote the he rewrote all of his all of his work, 1861 through 62, to put the entire um, theory together, and then published it in 1865, the dynamical theory where he posited that that light is indeed an electromagnetic wave and that when when these things work it's not the old it's not the old newtonian picture of well you just you know you just wave a magnet in a room and and it impacts everything you know and it's all instantaneous he said no it's not instantaneous it's travels at the speed of light but it does take time to get there. Yeah, um, Maxwell's work, in fact, opened, opened it up for Einstein for his relativity. If Maxwell had lived, he might have discovered special relativity on his own. And when he was, uh, when Einstein was praised for, you know, the greatest person since Newton, he, he stood up at the centenary, uh, centennial of, um, Maxwell's birth, and said, I stand not on Newton's shoulders, but on James Clark Maxwell. We do have time for questions. There you go. Okay, we're going to hold off on questions. We're going to give them, <laughs> we're going to give you two minutes to get this. All right, two minutes. Not yet. He wants to read his last thing. Go ahead. Well, I'm going to go back right right there. Okay. <clears throat> the physicists up to that time were, were figuring out mechanical waves and force distributions and all this kind of good stuff. And what Maxwell found out was <clears throat> that this interplay of transverse waves Transverse meaning uh, the electric the electrical field interacts with the magnetic field, and that is how waves are propagated. No medium required. Huh? No. Uh -uh. No. 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 <laughs> At the antenna. You have, you know, you, you have, uh, varying frequencies or, or varying, uh, um, currents. That's your frequency. But how does it propagate? It's through the transverse, uh, electromagnetic and, and, uh, or the, uh, electrical wave. You'll, 
the wave through the electric field transverse to the magnetic field. That's how it propagates in, in free space, in a vacuum. So no, no medium required. And at that point, there was no medium. So now we, we skip the part where um, uh, Maxwell's, Maxwell had 20 equations, 20 equations and 20 variables. And a guy named Oliver Heaviside invented the vector calculus and those differential operators and reduced it to four equations in just in uh, the unknowns being the electric field and the magnetic field. And within four or five years, that was the universal adoption. Okay. And now you can get it on a coffee cup. All right. Good. All right. Does anybody have any questions for Tom? <coughs> going to take three minutes for that, and then we'll have Rebecca come up. So when light goes through water, does it get wet? No. No. It doesn't get wet. Uh, anybody else? <laughs> Oh, yeah. Here, okay, here comes Tim and then Holly. Okay. Uh, did they, did these guys set it all up for Edison? I mean, did he take a lot of what they already put together to? Uh, no, that, <clears throat> that whole piece of history is, has to do with uh, sources of electricity mm -hmm. and transmission of electricity and distribution, mm -hmm. you know, for power and things like that. Right. Um, Edison was, Edison was, uh, barking up the wrong tree because he thought, he thought direct current was the right way to go and it was not the right way to go. Yeah, okay. I, I just thought they might have set up a bunch of the groundwork for him, but not connected. No, in fact, uh, the, the, the guy Heaviside who, who rewrote Maxwell's equations, um, he was big on, uh, transmission theory. He invented the coax cable, for example. Yeah. And he also invented that little coil that goes into the, into the handset yeah. in order to reduce the, the chatter and the buzz. Yeah. yeah. That was heavy side. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Tom. I have a question, Tom. As far as like your passion for this, what makes this so beautiful? Like, what is it about this that really sparks you and makes you say these laws, this this set of things are what sparks a passion? Well, that's it right there. You know, um, when you when you start at the beginning of the nineteenth century, and electricity and magnetism are just you know, lab oddities. And then there's this accidental discovery and this accidental discovery and something else happens and somebody else grabs this and says, well, it wasn't quite right, so we'll just tweak it a little bit. And then it grows and grows and grows and then all of a sudden, wham! Somebody builds the, the tools to kind of catch up with all the work that's been done. And then it it winds up being described elegantly in 
I mean, the, those are simple lines, but there's a lot going on there. Um, you said he had proven, uh, Merrick was his name? Merrick, right? The Scottish gentleman. James Clark Maxwell. Maxwell, yeah. excuse me. Maxwell. Yeah. You said he had, he had proven that light was a wave? No, he posited that it was a wave. Okay, he did not prove it. Okay. No, he didn't. Uh, he published all of his uh, stuff in the 1860s and then wrote a two-volume summary of his, of his collected works in 1873. And then he died at the age of 48 in 1879. But he was convinced it was a wave. He was convinced it was a wave. He said it works out. Uh, we have calculated the uh, the speed, and he says the speed matches the known measurement of the speed of light. He said that cannot be a coincidence. How does that relate to the ongoing debate of the duality of light, that it's a particle versus it's a wave? Uh, <clears throat> light has both wave-like and particle-like properties. That's it. Young's experiment showed that it's a wave back in the early 18, like 1812 or something like that, where they two independent light sources through slits, and the interference pattern says, geez, it's a wave. And then, and then the experiments, the, the uh, photon experiments, uh, that Mickelson Morley did later on said it's particles. So, did you have a question? I think I get your passion for this. Uh, uh, the principle that seems to come out of here for me is that we have a tendency to think that knowledge brings meaning, but really, knowledge comes out of meaning. Meaning was established right there. And in, in all these guys' minds and, and the yeah. stirrings of their heart and the work of the spirit, yeah. they took, they created knowledge out of meaning that matched. Cause before what people thought was knowledge didn't match. Mm. Yeah. Well, there was, uh, there was an awful lot of facts laying, laying all over the place. And out of that comes the truth. And this is, this is a quote from James Clark Maxwell. He said, truth is more than just about the facts. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, thank you, Tom. All right. Appreciate it. Love stuff like that. All I could think of while he was talking was like, because math was not my big skill, I actually got a C by bribing my teacher. Um, but it made me think about the mysteries that are all around us that come to light. And um, uh, that's pretty cool. So um, Becky grew up in a musical household, and she started playing piano at four years old. And she has a beautiful baby grand that she testified about getting. Uh, and so um, she majored in music ed at John Brown University, and which led her into children's music education. And she is married to the lovely Dan right there. And they're going on their 36th year anniversary. Wow. There we go. Yes? Must be teacher night, huh? Let me, let me clip it right here for you. Oh, yeah, clip it. 
So I'm going to go old school media tonight. Um, just a quick introduction. Uh, <clears throat> the theme of my topic tonight is change. And uh, it's been something I've been meditating on since my dad passed away a little over a year ago. And um, a lot of change, everybody has change, whatever, but I'm learning how to embrace change as a gift and an opportunity. Uh, my aunt and I wrote this book for uh, my music classroom a few years ago. And I had no idea the impact. <laughs> when I reread it today, I haven't read it in a while. I read it, I started crying. I was like, man, God wrote this book, and I didn't even know all the things that were coming. So I'm going to read it to you tonight. Um, I think it's kind of cool that we're all, most of us, in the center. If you want to come closer, you can. It'll be hard to see the pictures from far away. Of course, afterwards, if you want to come and look at the pictures, you can too. But I wrote this as an interactive, please, yes, as an interactive book with my students about third grade level. Um, she, my aunt, has a PhD in Southwest Health Culture Studies. Um, she got her doctorate degree when she was uh, 75 years old. She's such an inspiration. Anyway, she uh, has all the history and everything from the book itself. I just wrote the story based on what I wanted students to experience about Native American culture, teeny tiny bit. This is the story of Canettle, a story of change. <clears throat> The boy crouched quietly on the familiar flat rock as he observed the large bird. His heart beat in quiet, rapid rhythms as he watched the great heron standing in the river. My aunt did all the illustrations. Canettle was the boy's name. His people lived near the big bend in the river. Every day after he finished his work, he would go to the riverbank <clears throat> to watch the birds. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> Often he would pretend to be like them, flying, swooping, swimming. He even stood on one leg like the great heron, seeing if he could balance without falling in. The heron rarely had patience for Canettle as the boy played his pretending games. Canettle had a companion a drum given to him by one of the elders. The tom-tom drum was named Patlani. Canettle and Patlani were best friends, talking together everywhere they went. Canettle would tell Patlani about the birds, animals, and river, with Patlani answering when Canettle gently patted, thumped, or brushed the top of the drum's smooth skin head. Patlani's different sounds mimicked the voices of the creatures in landscape. As the heron's strong wings rose from the water taking flight, Patlani would call out, Wump, 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 wump. Or when the rippled waves gently hit the riverbank, Patlani would echo them. The strap attached to Patlani made it easy for Canettle to carry his drum with him wherever he went. These two had many adventures together, but none as important as what was about to happen. Most nights at the council circle, the men would play their drums under the stars and dance to the moon. But tonight, the drums were all silent. Canel could tell by the men's forceful voices that something important was being discussed. 
Most of them remembered that not too long ago, some strange-looking people had passed by their dwelling place. These strangers had come close to them, even talking with Knittel's group. But the strangers always continued on with their journey, leaving the Manso group alone. A few days ago, more strange people had appeared, but this time they did not keep traveling. They were making plans to stay. The men were uncertain of what to do if they had new neighbors. What would change? Canetto watched and listened and wondered, too. When Canetto got to the riverbank the next day, he went to his watching place. He had not slept not much the night before. Many questions had troubled his normal slumber. Canetto asked Patlani, If this new group of people stayed close to his people, would they disturb the birds? Would they come to the drumming circle? Would they see him? The sound of his friend's simple pattern helped Canetto sort through his thoughts. All of a sudden, Patlani became quiet as Canetto noticed something different across the river. It looked like the old nest in the dead tree was getting bigger. The herons had built and used the nest to lay their eggs two springs ago. Canetto had witnessed the baby birds hatch and grow from this very spot. Since then, the nest had been vacant. His excited heart started to beat fast in his chest. Who would raise new hatchlings? He waited for several long hours to see if the nest builder would arrive. As his patience grew thin, he remembered that some birds worked by the light of the moon. Canetto decided that tomorrow he would come before the sun awoke to see if he could get a glimpse of the nocturnal mother bird. Cheerfully, he told his plan to Patlani. That night at the council, the drums spoke strong and loud. The music rang through the night sky, touching the stars and bouncing back to Canetto. When they had exhausted their energy, the men sat down beside the elders to rest and listen. One of the elders began to tell a story. Long ago, before our people lived here, the mighty river did not have the shape like a snake. Its path was like an arrow, and its water would rush through with forceful strength. It beat against the edges of the bluffs, pleading for the earth to follow it downstream. Finally, the bluffs granted the wish of the river. One day, as the river swelled with an extra surge of strength, some of the dirt and rocks were released into the water, moving from their familiar place. But instead of going downstream with the rest of the water, the earth was dense and held firm to the new banks. The great river tried to go over the growing mound, but the earth pushed the water's flow around it. Having no choice, the river changed its course. This new path became the bend. Because the water must take longer to go downstream, it has slowed its pace and tamed its passion, providing our place to dwell. We must think about the river and decide if it is time for us, too, to bend and change. The next morning, Canetto crept up out before the sun was awake to try to see the night bird. The story of the changing river was still in his head. He and Patlani crept toward their rock. They must not be noticed if they were to spot the mama. Canetto's thoughts were divided between the ancient history of the river and his longing to see the nest dweller. He tried to imagine the water rushing so fast that it could lift off a piece of the bluff. 
His body shuddered at the thought of such power. Suddenly, he spied movement by the nest. It was the bird, fatter and shorter than the heron, and had huge yellow eyes. The owl flew away and then back again, taking her work seriously. She had strong wings like the heron that lifted the heavy bird easily with large, flowing strokes. Finally, as the sky began to give its first light, the new mother bird flew away and did not return, tired from her night's work. Kanetal and Patlani imitated the airy sound of the new bird's wings as it rose out of the nest. As Kanetal brushed his hand across the drumhead, the new sound felt smooth on his palm. It pleased him. Making their way back, Kanetal was absorbed with his discovery. Suddenly, he realized the new people were standing with the elders and men. Ducking behind a bush, he pulled Patlani close to him. He was like the heron, wanting to be left alone in peace. The men from his group were trying to understand the new men and did not seem afraid. He wanted to get closer, but he was not brave. Finally, both groups seemed satisfied with their discussion and moved away from each other. Canetta was glad he had practiced being a heron and sat still for a while, even after the men had left. He wondered what this could mean and decided that these odd people, like the birds, should be watched. He and Patlani went to the river and walked downstream along the bank, staying in thick clumps of tall grass. He peeked up every now and then to have a broader view, and finally, as he turned a small bend, he saw them. His heart started to pound wildly. He softly talked to Patlani, adding their new sound to the old familiar ones to help calm his nerves. These new people were so different from him. Their hair was not cut around their ears and neck like his. He could not see the shape of their bodies because some sort of dark covering hung from their shoulders to the ground. And they spoke with strange sounds that he could not understand. And wandering around in their camp were odd-looking animals. He had never seen some of these kinds before, large, thick ones with horns that stuck out sideways from their head, and others that were fluffy like clouds. There were birds, too, similar to some of the ground birds he knew, but fatter, strutting around, ignoring the people, while they scratched on the earth, looking for food. Canetta's mind was mixed up with curiosity and confusion. Until now, he had not known there was anything beyond his world. He had never considered that there may be others who were not like him. Where did they come from? How did they understand each other with their strange sounds? Why did they have those animals? Why did they come here? How long were they going to stay? Instead of getting answers as he watched them move about their day, he had more and more questions. Hatlani's familiar voice spoke and gave Canetto comfort. A few weeks passed as Canetto and Patlani pondered new thoughts and rhythms. Canetto decided to spend some time each day at his old spot to watch the nest, and then would go visit his new spot to observe the people as the sun was moving lower in the sky. While he kept an eye on the strangers, he noticed that not everything about them was different. The others worked together, ate together, and made music together like his people did. They seemed to be planning something, too, often pointing to the river and then to the valley out past their camp. They were all so peaceful towards each other, like his group. Canetta let Patlani talk to him with various longer patterns to help him sort out his new thoughts. 
Panetta thought about the new people a lot. They were even on his mind as he watched the river in the nest. One day, he heard noises from the dead tree and was excited to learn that the eggs had hatched. Beep and squawk, he echoed to Patlani, stretching his neck and pretending he was a hungry owlet. Later that afternoon, large clouds began to gather in the sky. The wind whipped the dust around. It had been dry for a long time, and the clouds were finally getting ready to share their water with the earth. Canel decided to stay close to home with Patlani. Being out in a storm was frightening, especially when the sky opened up with its torrents of rain and loud crashes of thunder. He and Patlani talked about the storm. The storm indeed was strong. The wind tried to strip Patlani out of Canetel's hands long into the night. Bolts of lightning and crashes of thunder terrorized the night sky. Rain and hail came down in sheets, making mud and new water pads all over the parched earth. Hours later, the two friends were grateful for sleep that finally came as the storm slowly moved off, taking its fury away with it. When Canetel awoke the next morning, he could hear the roar of the mighty river. Nervously, he wondered if the rushing water had taken away his watching rock. The boy darted quickly to his special spot. The river was indeed swollen, but the rock was in its familiar place. He tested it. When it didn't move, he climbed up onto its back. Looking across the river, Canetto was surprised to see that the nest was tilted. There was loud squawking, and the mother owl was flying about with unsettled movements. There on the ground below was one of the baby owlets. Canetto wanted to help. If he did not, quite possibly the baby bird would not survive. He felt protective of these owlets, and he knew what he must do. He would climb the tree to put the baby back in the nest. Mother Owl would not like him getting that close, so he would have to do the act quickly. But what about crossing the river? He saw its water lurking at the edges, hungry for the earth to yield to its power. He did not want to be swept away in its swift current. However, sensing a new feeling of bravery, his heart beating hard in his chest, he moved forward with his plan. He found a place to cross where the water slowed down. As he entered, the small waves licked his legs. He walked carefully, balancing like the heron before taking each new step. In the middle of the river, the water crept higher up his body, and the current was indeed strong, urging him to move with it, but he remained firm. He kept his eye on the bird and strode through the muddy water to the other side. He moved quickly to the outlet. When he reached it, the mother owl spread her broad wings and flew out of the nest. She landed on a bush close by, making lots of noisy racket to try and lure him away from her babies. Keeping an eye on her, he picked up the small bird and quickly climbed up the tree. After gently placing the bird next to the others, he adjusted the nest and jumped down. As before, he moved back through the water with balance and sure footing. Once he was to his bank, he saw that the mother bird had gone back to the nest and the little birds were the noisy ones again. A new sense of accomplishment washed over him. Canetto's heart felt full as he returned home. That night in the drum circle, he played Patlani with extra confidence. He was aware that something new inside of him was playing as he joined the group's music. Canetto felt connected to the others in the council. Perhaps this is what it meant to be a man. The strong heart beat in his chest was different this time. It made him feel powerful, not afraid.
Patlani echoed his friend's new feelings of bravery. For the next few days, Canetto continued to watch the new people as he had done before. He still went to his spot in the bushes, but he didn't sit so far back. As he again pondered their strange looks and ways, he thought to himself, what would I do if they saw me? He realized that his time to meet these strangers would come soon, and that it would be okay. The end. (laughs) When I do this with children, they all have a drum, and they get to echo, and we're teaching listening, we're teaching ensemble things, a little bit of technique. So there's more to the story than just the story. There's also the joy of participating. And they, they're kind of wiggly because they're so excited to have a drum for about the first five minutes. And then they lock into the story. And pretty soon the drum just like, they're, they're into the story and the drum is kind of the secondary piece. It's a super joy to share this with people. So before we um, actually ask you some questions, how many of you in here believe you have a book in you? <laughs> I want you to stand. You're called to write a book. You feel like you're, you're or maybe you're in the midst of writing a book. Look at You've written a book and you know there's another one in you. Look, look around. I know. Look around. Awesome. Okay. How many of you have actually published a book? All right. I need you. I need you. I need you. I need Becky. I need Isaac. I haven't published. See? This is just... Okay. So I need all of you guys who have published a book to come up here. Because um, Isaac, did you write a book? Then come up here. So what I want you guys to do is I want you guys to... I'm going to hand the mic to Isaac and then to Kelsey, and we're going to go down. And I want you guys to, oh, no, 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 get back up, you people who have a book in you. And I want you guys to pray for them. And I, you know, or declare over them or whatever that that book comes out. Father, we come to the throne of grace in Jesus' name. And thank you, Lord, that you are the Word, the Word made flesh, the Word of God. And uh, you communicate everything, your heart of love for us, your plan for the world, your plan for eternity through your words. We thank you, Lord God, that uh, you have taught us words, languages, and the words, and the meanings. We pray, Lord God, in Jesus' name, that uh, the vision that you have for each of the people standing here, each of us who want to write a book, that you'll make that vision your vision, and what message that you want to communicate to the world, that we'll do it with excellence, with clarity, with the anointing of the Lord, that will accomplish the purpose for which you sent that word through the books, Father. Mm-hmm. As you said, my word will not return empty, but will accomplish the purpose for which I sent it. Mm-hmm. And so be it. We ask this in Jesus' name for every one of us, Father. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah, God, I just thank you for the messengers and the messages that are um, standing and waiting in this room. God, I ask that you would just open heaven. Lord, maybe people that are 
um, still waiting on what the message is. God, I ask that you would speak even tonight just Mm -hmm. to bring clarity. Right now, God, I just ask that you would dust off confusion or cloudiness, that the dust would settle and, and boldness would rise up. God, I break off the lie that they have to have everything figured out mm-hmm. or they have to be perfect uh, before they step forward. God, I just pray for strength, God, that you would equip them, that you would give grace to the writers, and that their, that grace would, just like it is upon your lips, that it would be poured out upon theirs, that they would um, take... Uh, yeah, just take the pen and write it, type out the words on their computer, God, and just, I thank you, and we just honor you for what you're already going to do, and we celebrate the messages and the books in Jesus' name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just agree for stories to burst forth out of hearts and minds and for fear to subside and for um, there to be just that... <laughs> thing that can't be ignored, where you just have to start and just go with whatever happens and watch you, God, uh, let the path unfold. Thank you, Lord. Um, To interject, uh, get something on paper first. (laughs) Edit later. (laughs) So I just pray, put words down. And Lord, like a river, let the words flow. And then let the adventure come of arranging them like a, like a flower arrangement to look upon each part of the thing that was written mm-hmm. and see how they all go together, how they all become a decoration, how they all make a story from beginning to end. Yes. And we just bless you with that. And that it helped them to create each character, give each character life. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Daddy. Okay, now you can sit down. (laughs) So, does anybody have any questions for Becky? So, Daddy's really been prodding me to go on ahead and get this book project done. And this is like confirmation. (laughs) I've been resisting, I've been afraid to put forth the, the, whatever the money in it. Not anymore. Tonight it's getting done. Excellent. Excellent. So any questions, any sharing you may want to do, Holly's going to come up. I have a question, because I know you've been meditating on this for a long time, the change piece, and what is the biggest thing or the greatest thing that you feel like God has showed you so far as you've walked through so many change after change in this season? I'd say the biggest thing is kind of, what I was referring to before, to accept change as a gift and an opportunity instead of resisting it. Because as creatures of habit, we really do resist change. We don't want things to move. But that's so against transformation. That's so against the movement of God. And so we have to change, and we have to be... Uh, we don't, I, I go kicking and screaming. He changes me regardless. But I feel like I'm changing my perspective of being more open to it. And whatever the change is, not just what I think the change is going to be, <laughs> like whatever it is. Okay, we'll go there. Thanks for asking that. Um, I'm just wondering with your kids, after you read it, after you read the story and mm-hmm. you're playing the drums, then do you feel like you have the space to 
um, just almost like minister to and just like love on and just kind of share like you would in a setting like this. I mean, obviously probably changes a little bit, but do you feel like that's just something you've seen as a tool that really is empowering um, children? For sure. For sure. Yeah. In the classroom, of course, I mean, this takes a a fair amount of time. Um, So there are times when I did it in two pieces so that there was time for that. But uh, yeah, I mean, lots of times you end this story and you just let there be the space, the pause, and that settles in. And then questions start to come up days later, you know, whatever. So, yeah. Is there anyone on Zoom that has a question or comment? I'm going to look real quick. You know, Terry, I, I, I know you have a book in you, too. <laughs> I just remembered that. Awesome. So I did talk to Laurel just a little bit this, today, and we talked about having the kids in here while I did it t- tonight. But with some logistic things, we decided I'll probably t- just take it in there with them. But it is really cool to do I- intergenerationally. Yeah. Yeah. You want, yeah, come to the right. kids. <laughs> Thank you, Becky. You're welcome. You can come uh, and look at question? it anytime. Well, come here. <laughs> you got to do it on the mic so they can hear you on Zoom. She has a question? Yeah. Okay. I might have missed this because I did have to go blow my nose and use the restroom. Oh, so good. I was just curious, actually, how long of a process it was for you to write that book. Good question. It took a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. Did you know the story right away or was no. it unfolded as you? Okay. Nope. Quick version is we were sitting on the couch. I was asking her to tell me about her her doctorate thesis. And as she was talking to me, I realized there was a need in my life to have some curriculum in my classroom. And it just started to blossom. That's awesome. And it took, but it took, it took a lot of time for her to do the pictures too. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah.